Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 119. If you haven't gotten the theme uh, for today, it's pretty much the Word of God, because that's the important portion of this section of Psalm 119. There is a great emphasis upon how the psalmist has, in a sense, come out of his pit. Remember last week, that it was the most desperate and depressing section of the entire psalm. Well, it seems like he's coming out this, this week. And the reason he is coming out is clearly laid out for us in the first verse of our section, verse 89. Your word is settled in heaven. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read this portion of Psalm 119. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you come upon us with your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to what your word has. Not just so that we will understand it, but so that we will live it. So that we will live as the fact that these things are true and your word is settled. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 119, verses 89 through 96. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Thou didst establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to thine ordinances, for all things are thy servants. If thy law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget thy precepts, for by them thou hast revived me. I am thine. Save me, for I have sought thy precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider thy testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Thy commandment is exceedingly broad. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. And the question is, what brings the psalmist out of his uh, pit? We can see if it weren't for your law and my delight there, I would have perished in my affliction. Uh, It is the fact that the word of God is settled in heaven. So it's not just settled in heaven as if heaven is a, is a separate place. When the psalm talks about that, he is settled, it is, he's saying it is settled in heaven, therefore it is settled everywhere. And today we're not going to go any further into the psalm. There are six or seven other things we could chew on. Today it is only verse 89. The word of God is settled in heaven. Now, as comforting as that is, To the psalmist, these are dangerous words in today's society. The fact that we would stand up and say, God's word is settled. You know, that's what it is for us. As believers, we don't have to go any further. This is what is truth. That is a dangerous statement in our society. And and those who study society say we're living in post-modernity. I'll let you look up that stuff. Uh, But post-modernity is characterized by a pessimism by a need to listen to many voices in case any of them contain truth. And the one which interests us most today is the fact that it is characterized by a lack, a belief in a lack of objective truth. Now, subjective truth, Randy's handsome. That's subjective, okay? That's subjective. Um, Gravity, objective truth. Okay? That's a very simple illustration. You don't want to drop that book on your foot, I can tell you that. Um, but um, 
Stanley Grins, who writes about this stuff, and I've read a lot of Grins, and it says, it is difficult to be governed by competing voices without, at the same time, losing a single authoritative voice. With each new voice, we can't but help doubt the validity of the other voices. Oh, this is a good, tr- this might be truth. This might be truth. And then tomorrow, well, we might have truth there. To reject the knowledge as objective, but see it as historical relational and personal so randy's truth is defined by community because i like it that way that way I'm, I'm okay everything around me is the way that i like the theologian d.a carson says that the dreadful alternative to the concept of objective truth there is a dreadful alternative to the concept of objective truth He says, if there is no objective truth that binds all cultures together, that evaluates them, then there is only truth for the individual, for the individual culture, and for those many divisions within each culture. So I can have my truth, uh, you can have your truth, the Methodists can have their truth. um, That's just the way it is. If we discount an objective overall truth. We're surrounded on every side in this culture by the question that Pilate asked, what is And that is the mother of all sins. Okay, the mother of all sins. Because Satan comes along to Adam, and and he said, really? Did God say that to you? He didn't mean that. And Adam then defined truth for himself. He said, well, God said this, but I'm going to do this because I want to define truth for myself. For myself. We live in a culture that has exchanged the truth of God. For a lie and suppresses the truth. It's right out of Romans chapter 1. Rejection of truth is the demise of any denomination. It is the destruction of any nation. It is the disintegration of any society when you put aside truth. And nowhere is that clearly seen as a philosophy to change the world in what uh, the famous communist Lenin said. He said, give me just one generation to educate and I'll change the world. So if you can change the mindset from youth on, you can change the world. This is seen out in study after study about um, the age difference in who believes in objective truth. Okay, People my age, we more than half of us believe that there is an overarching objective truth. When you get down to the 20-year-olds, 75% don't believe there is an objective truth. When you get down to the teenagers, now I know this is shocking for anybody who has teenagers, that they don't believe hardly anything of objective truth. Okay, They have pitched that out. And if you pitch that out, you pitch out right and wrong. You pitch out all of those things that we hold to be stable within society. Um, we are given over to this idea that if there is the only absolute is what? There are no absolutes. In humanism... Humanism says man is truth. Pragmatism says whatever works is truth. Pluralism says everybody has a little piece of the truth. Relativism says each situation determines the truth. Mysticism says intuition is the truth. Skepticism says no one can know the truth. Hedonism says whatever feels good is the truth. Existentialism says self-determination is the truth. Secularism says this present world is the truth. Positivism says whatever man confesses is the truth. Objective truth is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Michael Novak, 
wrote a few years ago in a publication called First Things, said this is the characterization. He said the, the people who don't believe in the truth believe that truth, objective truth, is bondage. They say believe what seems right to you, that there are many truths as simply as there are many individuals. Follow your feelings, do as you please, do what's comfortable, Novak continues. He said if there is no absolute truth, then truth then becomes malleable. And everybody should just own his own authentic truth. Man, isn't that great? Each of us can have our own truth. Forget God and what he says. Randy becomes God. Individual truth is not tied to something definitive. Individual truth not tied to something definitive is bondage. If you raise generations of young people who don't believe there is an external and objective truth to which they must conform... Then they think that their psyche and their opinions and their own judgments are true. I like your stuff. I think it should be my stuff. Okay? That's, when there's no truth, that's the kind of thing that you end up doing. And what happens is each man begins to do what is right in his own eyes. Sounds truly Old Testament, doesn't it? How many times in, in, in the Old Testament do we see this is the way society has evolved this, they're the covenant people. This is how they describe. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. Why? Because they believed that they made their own truth. We go back to the first statement here. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. As believers, we understand that every perception in our lives, every attitude that we hold, every action that we take must be understood in the light of God's word. This is first and foremost in our lives because this is objective truth concerning the things of the Lord and how we are to live out. And if you reflect on, on subjective truth for a while, it really gets messy. It really gets messy because you begin to define things for yourself and you get away from the word and you just get into a quagmire. And people for, for thousands of years have tried to define human truth. We think of Socrates and and Plato and Aristotle and Descartes and Locke and Kant and all those guys, and they have problems coming up to define truth outside of one unmovable truth. Because if you define it outside of that one unmovable truth, which would be God, then truth is always moving. We who are believers understand that our spiritual lives which dominate everything else in our lives. That's what they're supposed to do. They dominate our physical lives. Our spiritual lives dominate all aspects of living. Our spiritual lives are fed solely by the Word of God. Solely by the Word of God. Now, how is it lived out? It's lived out in worship. It's lived out in fellowship. The Word of God is lived out in prayer and study and all of those things. And we see this in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the path of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is here in the Word. His delight is in the law of God, and he meditates on it day and night. And, and we've, I've said this before, when he said meditate, okay, that's the sound. If you have a cat and the cat's eaten its little friskies, and you get down to it, and you can hear it going, num, 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 num. that's the sound that you should make in your heart when you are meditating upon the Word of God. 
It is a joy. You take it in like that. Psalm 119, we read that the words of Scripture are more desirable than gold, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the comb. That's what the Word of God should be to the believer. We are instructed to let the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, be acceptable in, to the Lord. Be acceptable to the Lord. Joshua chapter 1, the book of the law of the Scripture is not to depart from our mouths. It is to be there all the time. It is to season all that we say. It is to flow from us on a regular basis. All of life depends upon the word of God. Psalm chapter 40, I delight to do your will, O my Lord. Why? Because your law is in my heart. If the law of the Lord is not in your heart, it's just not going to be a joy. But if it is in your heart, if it is your meat and drink to do the Lord's will, it is a joy. It is a joy. John chapter 6, a group of disciples, after hearing some of the hard things that Jesus said. Now, he said some hard things on a regular basis. And, and he said these things, and they went, and they didn't follow him anymore. And Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says, will you also go away? And Peter says this great, great response. To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. You alone have the words of life. Of life. Now, I've had people who've spoken to me about these things and who've said they were believers and have said, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not really interested in doctrine or, or studying the Bible real deeply. I just want to know what, what, how I want to feel the Lord. I, I want to live it out. Indifference to Scripture is not a mark of spiritual maturity. Indifference to Scripture, indifference to the Word of God is a mark that you are on the spiritual slide down. You have to love it. It has to be sweeter than the honeycomb. Now, unfortunately, this love for the Word of God is not universal in the church today. Now, I'm going to quote from J.I. Packer, who is an Anglican theologian, and, but he also falls under the category of, of evangelical. And he writes, and I, I brought this out, not because I want you to think, see what I sleep with under my pillow at night, um, but, but because this is the introduction in which he writes. This book is Richard Baxter's A Christian Directory. Now, Richard Baxter was a Puritan who wrote on how to live out the Christian life. A thousand pages, two columns of very small print, uh, over a million words. You think you how, how do you live out the Christian life? There's a million words here to tell you how to do it. Okay, and and I I, I confess I have not read all of this book. I've read uh, 15 or 20 percent, and it's rich. Now, if you want to tackle it, it's here. Okay, it is here for you. But let me I'll just give you some of the introduction here from Packer. He's talking about evangelicalism today in comparison to the Christian expectations that Baxter is writing about. He said, Evangelicalism today is egocentric, it is zany, it is simplistic, degenerate, half-magic spell-casting, which is all the world sees when it watches religious television or looks directly at the professed evangelical community. Or how-tos, how to have a wonderful family, how to have a wonderful life, how to have financial success in the Christian way, how to cope with grief, life passages, Crisis, fears, frustrating relationships are much the same as the manner of painting by numbers. 
Thacker says, man, you just got like eight steps and you can be happy, right? No, that's not what Baxter says. Baxter's work is a high level of intelligent, Bible-based, theologically integrated wisdom with unfailing, unimpaired clarity that is dazzling to the mind. It'll put you to sleep, too. But it's really good, okay? It is really, really good. Now, he writes in another introduction, building on the comparative biblical weaknesses of the church today. And I didn't bring that book out. It's just too much. Okay, this is plenty, but, but it's also it's called a Puritan theology. He says, it does not seem possible to deny that the Puritans were the strongest just where evangelical Christians today are the weakest. Here were men of outstanding intellectual power in whom the mental habits fostered by sober scholarship were linked with a flaming zeal for God. Where the Puritans called for order, discipline, depth, and thoroughness, our modern temper is one of casual haphazardness and restless impatience. In the church today, we crave stunts and novelties and entertainments. We've lost our taste for solid study, humble self-examination, spiritual disciplines, meditation, and the unspectacular hard work of Bible study. I love that. Okay? Here. You get together with your friends, and you say, what, what did the Lord say to you in your devotions today? Okay? Like we're expecting every day to be a new revelation of what God has for us. You know what I did? I pounded through four chapters of the Psalms today, and I put them into my heart. What did the Lord say? I don't know. It's working it out. Okay? It, it's like this. Um, uh, in 2014, on May the 2nd, I'll just pick on the men. Men, your wives cooked you a dinner. Do you remember what it was? No. Hmm. But it did what to you? Nourished you. It fed you. It sustained you. Okay? It was good for you. That's the same type of thing. Did you get some new insight into God's Word today? No, but you were doing the hard work of Bible study. And that's what Packer says the church is so lacking today. We, we do not want to do the hard work of Bible study. We'd rather gloss over stuff. We'd rather have feelings. We'd rather have a thrill of something rather than to digest and chew on and grasp it. Remember, one form of God's judgment to his people is to give them over to what they desire. Okay, What is the desire of your heart? If it's not the word of God, we have to be very careful. If the desire of my heart is something else, God may just, in judgment, give me over to it. Romans chapter 1. He just gave them over to what they really wanted. We think of Amos chapter 8. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread, not a thirst for water, but a famine for the, the word of God. Now, what did he mean by that? A famine for the word of God? What he's saying is, you, my covenant people, have had the word of God. You have had, in this sense, the scripture before you for generations, and you didn't want it. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to give it to you anymore. I'm not going to speak to you. I'm not going to lead you. I'm going to give you over to what you wanted. And there's going to be a famine. And when you cry out to me, he says, I'm not going to listen. Already, I don't like what you do. You have corrupted worship. You sing songs that aren't inclined to me. You 
have practices. In fact, in, in chapter 5, he says, I, I take no delight in your gatherings. I take no delight in what you do. Why? Because they were doing it for themselves, not for the Lord in his glory. John Calvin tells us this. He says, the word of God is believed when God regenerates the heart. When God works in your life, the testimony of the Spirit is superior to reason. For the words of Scripture will not obtain full credit in the hearts of men until they are sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. Scripture carries its own evidence along with it, deigns not to submit to proofs and arguments, but owes the full conviction with which we ought to receive it to the testimony of the Holy Spirit. See, I believe the Bible to be the Word of God, inspired in its original form, without error in its original form, that is the answer to what I need to do to understand God, how I need to live. I also believe that Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. In the same way I believe that there are three persons of the Trinity, the same way I believe that salvation is by grace through faith. And that is because the Word of God testifies to it and the Holy Spirit assures us it's the inner workings of the holy spirit in our lives now am i anti-rational am i anti-reasoning no scripture is rational it is reasoned as well but reason is not the source of our conviction that god's word is god's word reason cannot be that if i lay down for you all the evidences of the bible for its rationality, its reasoning, its authoritativeness. I'll just give you a couple here today. There are over 5,000 manuscripts and partial bits of the New Testament. That's just the New Testament. That doesn't even go into the Old Testament. Over 5,000, okay? And that was quite a few years ago. How does that compare to other historical works of the day? Um, it's head and shoulders above any other historical work from the first century. Okay? The textual evidences of other writings cannot compare. I'll give you a couple. I know you've read these all. The Gaelic Wars. Well, maybe, uh, maybe not. The closest manuscript is uh, 900 years away from when it was written. Roman history, 400 years away from when it was written. The history and annals of uh, Tacitus. 1,100 years. The cl- I mean, the closest manuscript we have to these things, 1,100 years away. No classical scholar would listen to an argument that those things were wrong. But they will point to Scripture and say, well, you don't have enough evidence that it is historically accurate. A myriad of times beyond other manuscripts. Okay, So, some portions of the Gospel of John date back to 120 A.D. That's only 30 years after John passed away. There's no other historic manuscript of the first century that has such proof. But that proof will not convince somebody to believe what is written there. As much as we would like to say, I can argue you into heaven by giving you the proofs, the ontological proofs, the archaeological proofs, the uh, academic, the writing proofs, that will not argue anybody into heaven. Let me tell you why. There are three, um, there are three reasons why. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 
for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined, spiritually appraised, spiritually discerned. How is it that your friend who's not a believer can read the same passage as you and not think anything of it, and you go, wow? How is it that before you became a believer, maybe you were in church and read the scripture and like, oh, Jesus, this is a long passage. Can't we get through with this? But now that you're a believer, you drink it in and you feast upon it. Why? Because these things are spiritually discerned. Your eyes have to be opened by the Holy Spirit. Documented, proven evidences are not going to change your heart. Only the Holy Spirit will change your heart. Why does the natural man not believe? Because he's unable to believe. He's not spiritual. Second, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Satan blinds humanity to the truth of Scripture. Very clearly, they are blinded by the God of this world, Satan. And the last one, and we we need to look this one up. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. It's going to be important that we see this because this one is going to be the hardest to understand and grasp. We can get the idea that, yeah, they're spiritually understood. And, And I remember not understanding them and reading them and making no impression upon me. But now that the Lord has worked in my life, I understand, I see. Yeah, I can believe that Satan would not like us to understand Scripture, that he would work to blind our eyes, fill our minds with other thoughts, and and, and take us away. This last one is harder to grasp, but it is gospel truth. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou dost hide these things from the wise and the intelligent, and did reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. It is the Father who blinds certain people to the Scripture. He does not open their eyes to it so that they may understand it, so that they may see it. So we have our natural condition, we have the satanic condition, so to speak, and then we have, in a sense, this divine judgment on people that I'm not going to open your eyes. To it. You will not understand it. You just will not. Why? Because it is your gracious will. It is pleasing in his sight to do so. How is it that some of the brightest scholars in our world have looked at these things for generations and don't get it? Because their eyes are not open to the word of God. Natural man's darkness is compounded by satanic blindness. And then you have God himself limiting who can understand his word. When you're trying to deal with a non-believer, you can stack up all kinds of evidence. And they may go and say, well, what about Noah and the, and the flood? Was that real? Um, what about all those miracles? How can you prove to me those miracles? Um, and, and one of the classic ones is, what do you do with all the contradictions in Scripture? Okay? Now, for those of you who who have ever read anything about the law of contradictions, if you study the law of contradictions and apply that law to Scripture, how many contradictions are there in Scripture? That many, according to the law of contradictions. 
But most people don't ever understand that. They just see, Paul says, don't swear an oath, and then he swears an oath. They, they don't understand the other things. Because they're not willing to understand it, nor are they able to understand it. So if you're going to talk to a non-believer who wants to debate the authority of the word, where do you go? You go to the word. And even though they may not believe it and they're going to rebel against it, but yet you take them to the word. Why? Because it is the word of God and the Lord will open their eyes to it. The Lord will reveal himself to them in his good time. And you say, well, Rand, if, if, how do I know who the Lord is going to open their eyes to and who's not, who he's not going to open his eyes to? We assume that the Lord will open everyone's eyes when we share the gospel with them. It is not our job to go, well, you know, I'd share the gospel with you, but I can tell by the way you look, you're not elect, and, and you're not going, so I'm not going to waste my time on you. No, that's not the way we do it. We share the gospel with everybody. Why? Because this is the power of God unto salvation. And you think, well, yeah, but it's words on a page. Yes, but it's the words on the page that the Lord uses when we proclaim them as the gospel truth. The Lord will open their eyes in his good time and for his good pleasure to save them in the same way that he has done us. This is what we do. Your word is fixed in heaven. Those are dangerous words in our society, but they are words we live by. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your, your word is sometimes hard and difficult, and it pushes us in ways that we don't like, but your word is a rich banquet upon which we feast. There are things in there that we do not understand. But as Westminster said, uh, we, we can understand. Even the simplest of minds can understand the things of salvation when you reveal them to us. Lord, we pray that in our conversations this week, next week, and going on in the future, when we have a chance to share about what we believe, that we would share the scripture and trust that you will open their eyes. We will share it as if at any moment the people that we're talking to will believe because you will use our pitiful efforts and your word and your Holy Spirit to do so. Lord, we're thankful that you have opened our eyes, that we can see what Scripture says, see it with spiritual eyes. So we are not blinded by the, the God of this world, but the one true God has opened our hearts, opened our minds, and opened our eyes. Lord, we give you thanks that we have such a rich meal to feast on in your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.